following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Exodus 14. Let me read this to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hathoroth between Magdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hathroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. <coughs> Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots, so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. 
The, the water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Great story. So you've got to picture the scene at the end of the chapter where we've just gotten to there. You have all the Israelites having come through the Red Sea. And by the way, there are about two to three million of them at this stage. So the text tells us earlier on, 600,000 men. So by the time you add women and children, you're probably talking two to three million is an extraordinary number. And they've come through this huge body of water that's been parted. And when the last family comes out the other side or the last person comes out the other side, God brings the waters crashing back together and the Egyptian army is completely wiped out. And just imagine what that must have been like for the Israelites standing there and just watching as the bodies of the Egyptian soldiers start washing up on the shore. As the, as the horses, the bodies of the horses start washing up, as the chariots start washing up on the shore. And they realize for the first time in, in hundreds of years, they are a free people. For the first time, they are free, free at last. No more Egyptian slave drivers, no more at the mercy of Egypt and Pharaoh. They are a free people. Now they truly belong to God, to Yahweh, as he's called, and not to Pharaoh. They are finally free. And the first thing the Israelites do as they come through the Red Sea and they get on the other side is they sing. It's their first response. And the next chapter in Exodus chapter 15, the whole thing is a worship song. It's all one big song of praise. They sing praises to God for delivering them, for saving them, for bringing them through and for wiping out the Egyptian army. And they are just so thankful they sing this great song of praise. It's an important song, this one. We won't read this in chapter 15, but if you want to read it in your own time, it's a great idea. But I want to point one thing out, because in this worship song they sing, on the far side of the Red Sea, a very important word crops up for the first time in our Bible. It's the word salvation. First time in English that word is used in our English translation of the Bible. It's in Exodus 15, verse 2, as part of the song. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. The Hebrew word there is Yeshua. And it simply means deliverance or rescue or being saved from imminent danger or immediate harm. It's, it's just that word that means to be saved out of a dangerous situation. And that's exactly what God has done. That Hebrew word has cropped up a couple of times earlier. But this is the first time it's translated as salvation because this is the defining story of salvation in the Old Testament. This is what salvation means. If you asked an Israelite living any time after this in the whole history of the Old Testament, if you asked them, what does salvation mean? They're not going to give you a theological definition. They're not going to give you a kind of theory of salvation or some abstract answer. They would tell you a story. They'd tell you the story of the Red Sea and how God parted the waters and led them through on dry ground. And they would say, that is salvation. That is the definition of salvation. The parting of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Israelites is the defining act of salvation. It is God's great saving act. And it's the, the act by which God reveals who he is, that he is for his people, that he loves his people, and that he is the God who saves, that it is his nature to rescue, to deliver, and to save his people. And as Israel then journeyed forward through the Old Testament, you see this pattern emerging, that when they face difficulties, 
from this point on, and you see this especially in the Psalms, when they face hard times and, 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 and challenges and the enemies are attacking them and their lives are threatened again, what they would do time after time is they'd look back again. They'd go back to this event and they'd draw on the memory of the Red Sea. To this I will appeal. The day when the Most High stretched out his hand and the waters fled. These great images that the Psalms use. The waters saw you and they trembled. And they writhed and they fled and you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites would draw on that memory of their salvation. That's what their salvation was. And they'd draw from it incredible encouragement for the present, for the trials they faced when they were struggling, when they were downcast. They would draw hope from that story. They'd draw fresh mercy and, and encouragement from that story to persevere because they knew if God had saved them then, would he not be faithful to them now? Would he not bring them through whatever it is they were facing? It was a past story, but it had tremendous present hope for them. So what we've tried to do through our own journey in the book of Exodus is as, as we've gone through this book, we've tried to look for the connections back on the one hand to the creation story and then on the other hand forward to Jesus. And we've seen the way that the book of Exodus points in both directions. There's connections back to Genesis and then there's corrections, uh, connections forward to Jesus. And the Red Sea story is a classic example of both of these. Both of those connections are there. First of all, there's a strong connection back to the creation story. If you look at the way in Exodus 14 that the parting of the Red Sea is actually described, just look in verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. Now that language has a strong connection, some of you can already hear it, back to Genesis 1-9, the third day of creation. Let me read that to you. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God did exactly the same thing on the third day of creation that he's now doing at the Red Sea. During the process of creation, God parted the seas. That was part of the separating work that he did. He created the waters, created the heavens and the earth, and then he parted the waters and he brought dry ground forth as part of his creative work. And now in Exodus, God does the same thing again. He divides the waters, he parts the waters, and he brings dry ground forth from the middle of it. What is God saying by doing this? That there's more going on here than just what he's doing with Israel? That this story is not just about Israel, it's about all humanity. This is about God's plan that goes back to the beginning to renew his world, to redeem his world, to renew all of humanity, and to renew the entirety of his creation. This is not just about God saving a particular people at one time and one place. This is a story of salvation that is cosmic in its scope. It has implications for us. It stretches the breadth of history. It stretches the width of the cosmos. This is a huge salvation story. There's a big plan going on here. We need to lift our eyes above just what's happening for Israel to see the fullness of the salvation story that God's writing here. And then, most importantly, the story connects not only backwards to creation, but on to Jesus. And this is such an important connection. When you think about the Red Sea story, you want to draw a straight line in your mind from that story through to Jesus, through to the salvation that is ultimately found in Jesus. Because great as the story of the Red Sea is, dramatic as that is, it's a shadow of what was to come. It's just a little taste of what God was preparing. And its purpose in the biblical story is to point the way forward. 
so that ultimately we have a better backdrop against which to appreciate the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Acts 4.12 says salvation, picking up that same word, salvation, is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we can be saved. And that name is, of course, the name of Jesus, whose Hebrew name, by the way, was Yeshua, which means God saves. It's a derivative of the same word that you find in Exodus 15 for salvation. That word is Yeshua, meaning salvation, deliverance. Jesus' name, Yeshua, meaning God saves, or Yahweh saves. Derivative of the same word. And there were plenty of people in Jesus' day called Yeshua. There were a lot of Jesuses walking around, plenty of Yeshuas. But Jesus alone embodied the salvation that his name represented. Jesus didn't just come to talk about salvation. He didn't just come to show us the way to a particular salvation. Jesus was salvation. And it's in the name of Jesus that true salvation, true deliverance, true rescue is found in the deepest and fullest sense through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. By dying on the cross for our sin, taking our sin upon himself, Jesus has brought us out of slavery. He's done something greater than the Red Sea. He's brought us out of slavery to ourselves. Slavery to an egocentric way of living. Slavery to our own agendas, our own vices, our own stuff. Slavery ultimately to the one who holds the power of death, who is Satan. He's brought us out of that slavery, and then through his resurrection, he's brought us into the fullness of new life, into a new place of freedom, a spacious place where we find forgiveness, we find peace with God, we find forgiveness of our sins, we find life in God's kingdom, membership in God's family, participation in God's new creation and the work that he's doing on earth. This is the Red Sea all over again, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They, 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 they may not have looked as dramatic to an onlooker, but they are far more significant, far more dramatic than what God did for Israel at the Red Sea. This is the fullness of our salvation that we find in Jesus. So when we look at the Red Sea story, we can't go straight from there to our lives. We need to go straight from there to Jesus. That story is there as a picture, as a paradigm of the salvation that came about through Jesus and the salvation that comes about in the heart of every single person who gives their life to Jesus in faith. Every time a person places their faith in Jesus, those of you that have done this, you know that. Every time a person places their faith in Christ, brings their life to Jesus and says, Jesus, I am yours. I want a relationship with you. When that happens, there's a miracle that takes place in the life of that person that's greater than the Red Sea. may not be visible, but it's just, it's even more miraculous. The miracle of salvation, the miracle of conversion that happens in the human heart and it's expressed through baptism is just as miraculous as the parting of the waters, a life transformed by the grace of God, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The miracle of salvation is what the Red Sea always pointed towards. And the fullness of the story, that's what it's there to show us, is just how miraculous and incredible our salvation is that we've now found in Jesus. And so, for those of us that have experienced that salvation, have come into this salvation, we can now come back to this story in Exodus and we can read it with fresh eyes. We can read it in view of our salvation. And I think what is supposed to happen for us is that this story should work for us a bit the same as it did for the Israelites in the Old Testament. They were able to look back on that event, the Red Sea, and they saw their salvation there and it gave them strength when they faced overwhelming obstacles in their lives. They drew strength from it. That's what it's supposed to do for us. 
It's not just looking back to a past salvation, but it's drawing strength for the challenges we face in our lives. Some of you this morning are facing really significant challenges, seas that seem to be unpassable, waters that seem to be uncrossable. There's tremendous hope in this story on the basis of the salvation that we've received in Jesus. There's tremendous power here. And this this story can speak hope, speak encouragement, speak with power into those situations that you're facing if you let it. Because salvation's not just a past experience. We look back to the cross, we look back to Jesus, and we draw strength for the present. And our salvation should make a difference in the present, shouldn't it? It should make a difference when we hit the wall. It should make a difference when life gets messed up. It should make a difference when relationships break down. That past salvation, that dramatic salvation, it should make a difference in the present realities and struggles of life. And it does. So I want to draw from the words that Moses said to the Israelites. Just before they crossed the Red Sea, I think this is where the hope comes to its clearest expression in this story. These three succinct phrases that Moses speaks to the Israelites just before they go across the sea. In verse 13, Moses answered the people. Here's the first thing he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And we hear that phrase spoken a lot in the Bible. That's a common phrase, so much so that it almost sounds like a cliche. We say, do not fear. You don't need to fear. God's with you. Sounds like one of those kind of Christian cliches that people throw around but Moses was able to look up and to see the pillar of cloud and to see the presence of the Lord the presence of Yahweh and to know that God was with his people and that made the difference that's what cast out fear that's what dealt to Moses fear that's what dealt to the fear of the Israelites the presence of the Lord with them I remember about this time last year I took Josh our oldest son on one of his school visits. He started school last September, and we went on a couple of school visits before that. Uh, one of them I took him on. And I remember we, were, we got out of the car and we we're walking. We had to go to the school office first, so we we're walking towards the office. And as we entered into the office building, we we're just walking side by side, and as we got closer to the office, I felt this little four-year-old hand grab my hand. Just grab it and hold on tight. He didn't say anything to me. We didn't look at each other, just holding on like that. And I knew what was happening. I knew that he felt fear, that he was anxious. Understandably, it's a big thing for a four-year-old kid to go to a school visit, and he felt that anxiety, and, and what he needed to do to deal with that fear was to grab onto Dad's hand. And, and nothing about the situation changed. We still went to the office, we still did the school visit, nothing externally changed. What happened was his fear, I hope, subsided, that his fear was transformed by the presence of Dad there, because he was secure in that presence by holding my hand. This is what God offers to us. In these times when we struggle and we battle. He doesn't offer, he doesn't promise that he will step in and solve your problems, that he will fix exactly what's going on in your life. He doesn't promise you an immediate and obvious solution. He he offers you something better. He offers you himself. He offers you his presence and the presence of his spirit. And, And you and I, we don't have to look up to a pillar of cloud. We've got the presence of the spirit if we belong to Jesus. We can look within and see the presence of the spirit taking up residence in our life. We have the presence of the Lord, and the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. We have the perfect love of Christ dwelling in our heart, and that casts out fear. doesn't mean that you won't feel scared sometimes. doesn't mean that you won't ever feel afraid or anxious. That's normal and natural and sometimes helpful, right? doesn't mean that you never feel fear. But what it means is that through the presence of the Spirit, we don't need to be slaves to fear. 
Because fear can just be another form of slavery, and we've been delivered from slavery. We've been delivered from that kind of bondage through Jesus Christ. You don't need to be a slave to fear. You don't need to be paralyzed by fear. You don't need to be driven by fear if the perfect love of Christ is taking up residence in your heart. And the more that we reflect on that love, spend time just soaking in it, marinating our soul in the great love of Jesus, the more that his perfect love is going to deal to our fear and cast it out and help that anxiety to subside, placing our hand in the hand of the Father. The situation may be the same. Our fears can be relieved. And then Moses says to the Israelites, he says, do not be afraid. And then he says, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. It's a great promise that we will see the deliverance of the Lord as we stand firm in faith, but I also think this is a promise where we can sometimes come off track a little bit, because what we can do sometimes is we take a promise, a great promise of Scripture like this, and I believe this promise is a promise for us today, but we can take this promise, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord, and we can pluck it out of its context here, and we can slap it on our situation. And so then we start saying, well, I am going to stand firm in my faith, and I know that if I stand firm in faith, God will deliver me from this affliction. He will deliver me from this sickness. He will deliver me from this financial mess. He will deliver me from this ruined relationship. He will deliver me. All I need to do is stand firm just got to stand firm and I've got to get some people around me who are going to stand firm as well and we're going to pray and we're going to have faith, man. We're going to have so much faith we don't even know what to do with it. We're going to stand firm and we will see. And then we start using language like, I'm believing it. I'm believing God for this and I'm claiming it and I can even see it. I could be one of these preachers, couldn't I? I can see it, man. You can see it in my mind's eye. I'm just going to take hold of it. I'm going to draw it down from heaven. You know, We get all bravado about this and we kind of end up with this like self-entitlement. Here, like my faith is going to move the hand of God, you know, and it's all about how much faith, oh, like faith is a commodity or something, you know, if I've just got enough of it, then I can do it. And we draw that from places like this, and we kind of think, and what happens when God doesn't answer the prayer? Then the soul searching starts, right? Then, well, then I didn't have enough faith, or maybe the people around me didn't have enough faith, that's a better excuse, right? So maybe you guys didn't have enough, you weren't praying hard enough. You weren't praying enough for me. You weren't spiritual enough. Maybe there's some sin in my life or maybe I'm just going to get angry at God and walk away. And then, then that just messes up people's faith so much because we just grab a promise like this and we just don't deal with it biblically. We just try to slap it on our situation. I want to tell you the story of a couple that used to come to our church called Bob and Katie Voss. Some of you will know them. American couple. And they were here a few years ago. Uh, for several years, Bob's a pediatrician and worked at Starship while he was here, and they were part of our church community for a number of years. Then they went back to the States, and last year, Bob was diagnosed with cancer, cancerous tumor. And he battled that for about a year, all kinds of chemo and other treatment, some trial drugs. And then earlier this year, he passed away. And Bob has written a blog journeying with, with his story and just expressing some of what he was going through uh, right the way through that whole ordeal. I want to read you one of his final blog entries, part of his final blog entry. He says, the truth to all of you is this. Since I was diagnosed last year, I've filled my medical brain with numbers and percentages of survival, length of survival treatments, etc. I've known that this cancer would likely lead to my death. With Katie's support and an army of prayer warriors and the knowledge of God's power, I had come to believe all along that I could and would be cured through God's grace. 
That miraculous cure is still possible. We still have hope. But it is time for me to start finding joy in death. I need to truly believe that God's plan is perfect, heaven will be glorious, and that good has come through this affliction. I believe each of these statements, but I still lack joy because I've elevated my love of family in this life on earth above God. So I still hope and pray that this next treatment will give me more time. I still do hope for a miracle. I am, however, working toward being joyful even in the event of death. What can be better than being in heaven in the presence of God himself? His perfect plan also gives me confidence that Katie and the boys will do just fine no matter what happens. He passed away in his early 30s, two preschool boys. But I would say that Bob did see the deliverance of the Lord, that that promise was true in his life, that he wasn't cured of cancer, but he was healed. He was healed because he came to a much deeper knowledge and appreciation of the salvation that he had in Jesus and a boldness in sharing it with other people. And now in heaven, he is fully alive. Now he is healed and cured. Now he's well and he's safe and he's secure. And one day he's going to receive a new resurrection body. See, we want deliverance now, right? We want the answers now. I'm in this mess. My business is crashing. I need a solution now. God, I need you to step in now. But God sees the long game. God's got a much bigger and longer picture of deliverance and salvation than we do. And often what God is responding to us is, I am going to deliver you, but it's going to wait until a new creation. I will deliver you, but it's not in this life. I believe, I truly believe that there is healing in the name of Jesus. Psalm 103 tells us that, that he, he forgave all our sins and he healed all our diseases. All of that happened at the cross, but the promise is given in the new creation. The promise is fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ comes back. And what we want, selfishly but understandably, is to pull all of that out of the, the storehouse of heaven and out of the new creation and try and get it now and try and pull it into the present. And sometimes, graciously, God will do that. Sometimes he will intervene in the present and he'll bring you some immediate solution. But more often than not, God is saying, I will deliver you. You will see the deliverance of the Lord when you finally are resurrected on the last day in the new heavens and the new earth. Then you're going to be healed and whole and the shalom of God will cover the whole earth. That day is when there'll be full and final salvation. Not yet. Not yet. And we've got to be careful that we don't become like stroppy children, demanding, trying to use our faith as a bargaining chip with God. Like we can hold him to ransom with our faith. What happened to God's sovereignty? What happened to his parental prerogative to grant or withhold according to his will? He's got so much blessing stored up for us, some of it now and much of it in the new creation. And what he wants us to have is not a bravado, triumphalist faith that expects everything now, but a patient endurance that will be faithful and persevere in hope until Christ comes again. So what is the deliverance that God is bringing into your life now? Because it's okay to pray for that. But maybe God's bringing a deliverance that you can't even see because you're so fixated on needing this solution and this answer and you're naming it and claiming it and declaring it and all of that stuff. And you're missing. God's actually doing something you can't even see because you're focused over here. Maybe he's building endurance into your life. Maybe he wants to develop character. Maybe he wants to develop perseverance. Maybe he wants to give you a patient faith. Maybe he wants to breathe some hope into your life for the new creation, not give everything to you now. Maybe he's working in those ways. Can you be open enough to see that? Not just fixated on the here and now and the immediate answers to your prayers.
Now, having said that, let me say this. I think sometimes we go to the other extreme too. I think sometimes those of us that get very skeptical of all the naming and claiming and believing and declaring in the here and now, sometimes we go to the other extreme and we don't expect anything of God now. And we end up with a very weak kind of prayer life that really doesn't think God's going to do anything in my particular situation. It's all left for the future. We've got to remember that we serve the God who did part the Red Seas and he asks us and invites us to call on his name. He invites us to pray and prayer is a powerful thing and God can and does work in the midst of our situations. Maybe not as you expect, maybe not even as you want him to, but he will act. I truly believe when we pray, something always happens. Always. I believe the Bible teaches that. But it may not be what you are praying for. God takes your prayers, transforms them, releases them according to his will. But prayer unleashes the power of God. And we can pray big prayers. When, sometimes when we pray, you pray for healing or something, we can kind of kill our prayers with a thousand qualifications, can't we? You know, God, I pray for healing for my friend here. But if you don't want to, that's okay. You know, God, there may be reasons why you don't want to. That's all right. It's understandable. You know, you don't have to do that. And by the time we've finished praying, we've talked ourselves out of it. You know, we're sort of on the other end. We can pray. We don't, you don't need to make excuses for God. When my kids want something from me, they don't say, hey, God, hey Dad, could I have an ice cream? But if it's not your will, I understand. <laughs> they don't say that. What planet would that be? What? They just say, can I have an ice cream? Right? And then, and then it's my, you know, my prerogative. And I'm not saying that we should be stroppy children demanding things of God. But the Bible invites us to ask. Ask. James tells us the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And you may be in a situation now where you're just up against it and there seems like there's no possible solution. Remember, the God you're praying to is the Exodus God. And he did part the Red Seas and he can work in your life. Don't ask him in a demanding and stroppy way, but you ask him fully believing he is able to part the Red Seas in your life as well. That he can do immeasurably, abundantly, more than you ask or imagine according to his power that's at work in you. Nothing is impossible with God. We've got to believe that. And please don't hear me saying that because we shouldn't have a kind of self-entitled faith, that we should never pray for healing, for miracles, for dramatic things. We can pray big prayers. We should pray big, bold prayers of a great big God and trust him with the outcome of those prayers. Trust him. But we can ask. We can ask without qualification. Okay, the final thing briefly, that Moses says to the Israelites, he said, be unafraid, and then he said, stand firm, and then he says in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. And we need to hear that, hey? We're, we're so good at just saying endless words to God, just using up all our words, and, and you know this because those of you that have prayed in desperate situations, you know how this works, and I'm embarrassed to say it, but here's what happens to me sometimes when I'm really praying for something in my life. I just really, really need something. You start to wonder whether you've prayed it right. Have you found this? You start, to, like, maybe, have I used the right words? You know, have I used, do I need to use a different word? Or maybe, it, have I read the right verses? Have I prayed the right scripture? Have I prayed in the right translation of the Bible? Maybe I need to go to the King James and, and use a few more these, thous, thenceforth, and hereforth, and all, you know, maybe that'll... You know, and, and we kind of kid ourselves because we're desperate into thinking that if we just pray the right way, and unfortunately, there's a certain Christian marketing industry that, that exploits this, like the prayer of Jabez stuff that came out years ago. You know, if you just pray this prayer, you just pray this verse, Lord, expand my territory and give me this and that. You know, do you really think God says, well, you haven't quite got the formula right? 
You know, you're so close there. If you just said thenceforth instead of Therefore, what, you know, do you think, God, is this the God we serve? No, he is merciful and he loves you. And the Psalms tell you that he, before a word is on your lips, he knows it completely. He knows what's in your heart. He knows your longings. He knows what you need. We can bring them to God. And I love that verse in Ecclesiastes that says, you are God in heaven and here I am on earth. So I'll let my words be few. Isn't that good? I'll let my word. You don't have to just endlessly endlessly pray stuff a few more times another bible verse just keep on it just take the pressure off yourself just let yourself rest in the sufficiency of god's grace he already knows some of you just need to hear that this morning god already knows he hears the cry of your heart. you don't need to just constantly it, it's a good thing to pray and we should but god already knows and you can rest in that knowledge and you can rest in the wonderful promise that accompanies that. Did you notice that in the text? Be still, for the Lord is fighting for you. What a great promise. The Lord is for at any given moment, as you struggle and you wrestle and you battle with your kids, your family, your health, whatever it is, the Lord is fighting for you, pushing back the darkness and building his kingdom. It might not feel like it. You might not feel like God's fighting for you at all, but you've got no idea the onslaught of evil that would be released in your life if God wasn't in your corner got no idea the full force of evil that god is holding back right now at every moment in our life he is restraining the attack of the evil one and he's fighting for you he's breathing hope into your life he's working in your circumstances he's working in your heart he's brought you here this morning isn't he to hear i hope a message of faith and hope and love god's fighting for you you need only to be still and just rest in his love and his providence and the assurance that he already knows and he already hears So this story of the Red Sea, if we just draw a line from this story straight to our lives, we're going we're gonna to get so messed up. We're going to have such a skewed faith. But if we draw a line from this incredible event straight to Jesus, and we see that this is, above everything else, a salvation story, that will ground us in faith and confidence in the God whom we serve. This is a story of salvation. And above all, it should lead us to the cross and bring us to our knees in gratitude at the incredible salvation that Christ has purchased for us there. And then in view of that salvation, it should give us encouragement in the present. It should inspire us and strengthen us to stand firm in our faith, to be unafraid and to be still before God because he is here, the same God, who part of the Red Sea is here. Yahweh is with us. The God of the Exodus is among us. He can do great things. His love is here. He has delivered us. One day we'll see the fullness of that deliverance. And until then, may we live in faith and confidence in the God who truly does save. Let's pray. Father, we... We really just want to declare and affirm what this passage leads us to declare, which is that you are mighty to save. That you are the author of salvation, the first and the last. You've brought about such a great salvation at the Red Sea and an even greater salvation through the cross of your son Jesus and the empty tomb. Thank you, God. Help us not to treat your salvation lightly, but to treasure it, to celebrate it, 
and to draw strength from it in the present. And I pray, God, for anyone here this morning who needs the hope of this story and the power of of your spirit in their life through the challenges that they're facing at the moment. Father, give them the power to be unafraid. I pray your perfect love would cast out fear, even now, that fear would subside in the hearts of those who are just feeling anxious now. I pray, God, that those who are lacking faith, you would strengthen them now. And by your spirit, that you would begin to, to breathe fresh faith into their life, that they would stand firm knowing that we will see the deliverance of the Lord one day. And God, help us to be still, to be still in your presence, knowing that you are good and kind. You are for us, and you are God. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.